Tonight, Congress staves off financial disaster, the do's and don'ts of life insurance, and why women are about to inherit trillions. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by All Worth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. Hey, this is the 79th time since 1960 that Congress has voted to increase the debt ceiling. Allworth Chief Investment Officer Andy Stout is joining us, as he does every Monday. Uh, Andy, you kind of knew this was going to happen, but it's nice to see it actually done, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, markets didn't really get too nervous when it came to the debt ceiling because you had House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, President Joe Biden. They were both sending out some positive signal signals, some positive messages saying we're not going to fall, we'll get this passed. And so I think that allowed there to be a, only a minimal amount of volatility associated with that. And when you just think about the debt ceiling in general, you know, you just mentioned you know, how many times it's been passed. Uh, but I mean, it would be, it, it would have been catastrophic. Let's put it mildly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If they yeah. did not reach or, or uh, extend the debt limit. Uh, now, fortunately, it's extended through January 1st, 2025. Republicans appear to be the, the big winners uh, from what they got out of the uh, debt ceiling uh, negotiations, specifically capping discretionary spending for the next two mm-hmm. years. Still have some defense spending, more than what, uh, you know, more than it pretty much any other area. Uh, and there's also work requirements now for some government assistance. What the Democrats got out of it, and specifically uh, President Biden, was that the timetable. It's January 1st, 2025. Meaning Doesn't it have to deal with it again. be an issue yeah. during his re-election campaign. So that yeah, was the what, big thing that they got out of it. So, so were you uh, surprised that the market took off the way it did it on Friday? I mean, was that because the debt deal was done or was it you know, because of the jobs numbers or, or you know, the, the wage inflation numbers or, or all the above? It had nothing to do with the debt ceiling. I mean, okay. that was all of last week's movements. The debt ceiling, once the uh, House Speaker and the President came to an agreement, it was just a matter of time before it made its way through the House and the Senate and to uh, President Biden's desk. What moved the markets on Friday when he saw the Dow soaring 700 points was the jobs report. Uh, and it gave uh, people a little bit of hope that the Federal Reserve would be able to pause at their next meeting uh, when they set policy rates on June 14th. So is this a good news is good news type thing? No, it's more of a bad news is good news uh, sort okay. of thing because the bad news was the, the reason, I mean, if you look at the jobs report, there's two parts to it. You had the number of new jobs employers added that just took off 339,000 plus there was 93,000 upward revisions the prior two months. So the net change was like 432,000. That's a big, big number that would actually argue for more rate hikes. However, what the market gravitated toward was more the unemployment rate, which jumped from 3.4% to 3.7% as uh, basically uh, there was a drop in employment of 310,000. Now, that might seem different because I, I just said there was 339,000 new jobs, but yet now I'm saying there's a drop in employment of 310,000. Uh, it's important because the government actually does two different surveys. The number okay. of new jobs comes from when the government asks businesses about the jobs they've added. The unemployment rate comes when the government asks households about their employment situation. So it's it's a big difference between the two. Uh, and what's notable is that the increase in the unemployment rate 
certainly gives the Fed room to pause at the June meeting. Plus, in that jobs report, Steve, you mentioned wage inflation just a second ago. We saw that average hourly earnings, uh, they increased 0.3% last month. That was expected. uh, But what was better was that the prior month got revised to down from 0.5 to 0.4%. So we're seeing a drop uh, in average hourly earnings. And on top of that, the weekly hours worked per week on average fell from 34.4 to 34.3%. So when you put that all together, it's suggestive of lower wage pressure for employers, which allows the Federal Reserve to allow more data to come in in order to assess the situation before a move, likely in July. If You're not. listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovec along with Steve Ruby. And if it's Monday, we must be talking to Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer at Allworth Financial. Uh, okay, Andy, so uh, the news that came out on, on Friday was good. Uh, over and above the, the debt ceiling, we, we got good jobs numbers and, and wage inflation numbers. Um, talk to me about a recession then. Uh, is it still likely or are we kind of working our way out of the woods? Well, if you look at the leading economic indicators, which are data points that move before the broad economy does, you know, they still do point to a slowdown. Uh, so, mm-hmm. I mean, there's risk out there. There's no question about that. On top of that, if you look at what the average economist is predicting, the average economist is predicting uh, negative growth in the third and fourth quarter of this year, suggesting that a recession would start um basically in roughly a month or so. Now, to be fair, you can go back to last November and look at what the average economist estimate was, and they were expecting a recession to have begun in January. That obviously didn't take hold because we had uh, growth in the first quarter of around 1.3% on an annualized basis. And right now, growth is expected in the second quarter. When you look at not only what economists were are predicting, which is around 0.6% or so, uh, but also if you look at where the data is tracking it. So the data that's been released so far is suggesting that our economy is growing at about a 2% rate of growth. But, okay. but does this even, even matter? I, I mean, if we do have a recession and everybody's already expecting it, wouldn't that already be priced in, baked into current stock and bond prices? To a degree. I mean, the market's pricing in, you know, it's not just one scenario. It's basically, I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but it's a a weighted average of many different scenarios. That's uh, the collective market uh, thoughts. Now, that certainly does suggest there is some pricing in of, you know, a recession. But if you think about it, there's also many people who believe that there won't be a recession, that we will have a soft landing and be able to keep uh, the economic expansion going at a slower rate, albeit, but still growth nonetheless. So what about the Fed's next move? We're at a point where we finally get to stop talking about the debt ceiling, which is really exciting. But (laughs) yeah, I'm happy. (laughs) I know, right? But we we still have to talk about inflation. So what do you think the Fed is going to do at this point, Andy? Well, right now, if you just look at where market pricing is, uh, the market has only a 25% chance of a rate hike when the Fed meets on uh, June 13th and 14th. So as of right now, not going to happen. If you look out to the next uh, meeting, that's when they would set the next policy rate would be on July 26th. 
there's almost an 80% chance of a hike by then. So mm -hmm. that's what the market's pricing. And I wouldn't be shocked if we do get a hike. Uh, but I also think, you know, with the headwinds the economy's facing, you know, I think there's a good chance uh, we get maybe a, a rate cut in maybe November or December of this year. So you think that's still a possibility? You know, what surprises to uh, me is, uh, you know, we're talking about is the Fed going to pause in, at the next meeting in, in June? And usually when they're out, um, you know, giving their talks at, at different venues across the country, they're all pretty much on the same page. We're, we're seeing some dissension in the Fed, aren't we? I, I mean, that's unusual. Yeah, it actually is really unusual. So if you rewind uh, about two weeks ago, there was a, about a 70, 80% chance of a rate hike on June 14th. Yeah. You know, again, that's down to 25% now. What changed that was comments from Vice Chair nominee Philip Jefferson. He talked about skipping a June hike. <clears throat> Literally within one minute last Wednesday, <laughs> it was at 1.17 p.m. There was a 70% chance of a hike. By the end of that minute on 1.17 still, the head dropped all the way down to 25%. That's a huge I sure am glad that what we say doesn't move the market like that. That's a terrifying <laughs> yeah. thought. <laughs> it would be a little wow. bit. But, <laughs> you know, that just shows you the power of a word. Now, Philip Jefferson has a big voice on that committee. He's a voter. He's the vice chair, basically second in charge, if you will, behind Chair uh, Powell. Now, there were some other Fed members out last week talking, and they were talking a much different book. We had, you know, four people basically came out talking about, you know, we need to have uh, tight policy. We need to be prepared for more rate hikes. And two of those four members are voters, because not everyone on the Fed votes, by the way. But two of the members, that's Michelle Bowman and Lori Logan, uh, they were talking about raising uh, interest rates to keep inflation under control. And yeah. <clears throat> what that means is you could see some dissension. Uh, for the first time under Powell's regime. In fact, there hasn't been one dissenting vote since 2005. So when you think about it from that perspective, this uh, <clears throat> this discord is a bit unusual in recent times. Does that mean anything for the markets when we have these different different opinions within the, the Fed? You know, it does a little bit. I mean, it's, it adds to the layer of uncertainty and markets typically don't like uncertainty. What the markets would prefer is the Fed to be done with the rate hikes and actually yeah. get to cutting eventually. And so when you have people who have votes like Lori and Michelle talking about raising rates because they're more worried about inflation than maybe Jerome Powell is, it does raise that level of uncertainty out there. And that's when you tend to see a little bit more volatility in the markets. Great perspective, as always, by Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Here's the Allworth advice. With the debt ceiling drama over for at least the near future, expect the fight for lower inflation. Yep, going to take center stage again. Coming up next, why women are about to control trillions of dollars of assets. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Steve Ruby. If you can't listen to us every night, um, very next day, you can get us on podcast. Um, if you think your friends could use some financial advice, tell them to. Just search Simply Money on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcast. Straight ahead of 643, we're going to break down the instances 
when you should and should not have life insurance. All right, so Saudi Arabia caught everybody off guard again over the yep. weekend. They're cutting oil one more time. Third time that, that they've cut oil. This time it's another million barrels a day being cut. Yeah, but previous cuts, um, they they didn't they failed to push oil prices higher. Yeah. So so they're going to give us one more, and, and this is going to start in July. And what does that mean for us? That, that means well, probably, it usually means higher prices. Yeah, probably higher prices at the gas pump. But, but here's what I'm thinking. I mean, they already cut 1.6 million barrels a day. 2 million barrels a day in addition to that, and now another million. Now, I'm not necessarily that great with numbers. I'm kidding, I'm kidding by the way. <laughs> but that's about 4.6 million barrels a day. I mean, that's a huge cut, and yet the price of a barrel of oil is still around 72 bucks a barrel. Nowhere near. I mean, that's, that's about half where it was at about a year ago. Yeah. That tells me maybe they don't have the influence they used to have. It would be nice, but I, I think it's still going to affect us at the gas pump, isn't it? Uh, it, it'll it'll affect us, but you know that that's we're going through a whole deglobalization right now. I, I think we're not taking for granted that we can get stuff from other countries whenever we want, and, and all of this tension does have a good outcome in in my view because it makes us realize, hey, we need to be a little bit more independent in a lot of areas, and not, not depend on Saudi Arabia for it, gas. It, exactly, you know, they're they're our friend as long as they want to be our friend, and it's to their advantage to be our friend. And the day that they don't want to be our friend, they're doing doing stuff like this. So yep. we'll, we'll, we'll see how this shakes out. But I, I, even the most negative experts are, are saying, you know, this might mean a marginal increase in gas prices. Okay. So when we throw out numbers like the national debt is $30 trillion, that's a big negative. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't say <laughs> it's a, it's a big number, but that's a big negative when you're talking about debt. But I'll, I'll tell you when it's a positive, and, and we're looking at a number right around that area of $32 trillion where it can be in a positive way. Yeah, so older women are about to get a lot of money. This is, according to the consulting group McKinsey, $30 trillion is the amount of assets that single women, mostly widows, are going to be inheriting that, that, by the end of the decade. That's three times where it was at three years ago. This is yeah, a huge triple from amount of wealth transfer. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of sugar mama, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I wasn't necessarily <laughs> expecting that. But, you know, women outlive men by, you know, on average five years. So, you know. Yes, this is the why behind it. And, and here's what, to me, is really important about this is, you know, in our industry as investment advisors and anybody in the financial industry, you know, if you go back 30 or 40 years, it was not only a male dominated industry as investment advisors, but generally, and this is a big generalization, I'm talking about past generations, more often than not, the, the husband in the household mm -hmm. made the big financial decisions. That's not necessarily the case now. And if you want to, you know, have an influence on the couple you're talking to, you better include the female, the the, the wife in the, in the conversation. Because, oh, nice. yeah, this is a huge amount of money that's being transferred. Yeah, currently women, they control, and this is women in the U.S., they control about $11 trillion in assets, which is 31% of the overall assets. Yeah. Men control about 70%. Yeah. But you better believe when, when folks that I'm working with, I, I want the, both spouses in the room when we're going through a oh, financial yeah. plan. Yeah. Part of what we do as advisors is to help people understand that we want their money to live longer than both of the people in the couple. Do. Yeah. And, and and making sure that we're having these conversations with women is extremely important to, to keep them in the loop as to what to expect 
when they survive their spouses. Because, yes, the, the reason why we're talking about this is, on average, women live longer than men. Well, and I, I think what you want to do with in the case of a married couple is you want both parties to be involved in financial decisions. Maybe one makes the final decision, but there has to be good communication between the two. I, I don't care if it's the old school, you know, male, female, um, maybe just uh, live-in partners or same-sex marriages or, or whatever the case is. You want both people involved because what you don't want is what I experienced about 10 years ago, where in this case, the husband made literally every decision, mm -hmm. every financial decision, and he passed away suddenly. And the wife came in with the proverbial shoebox, and it was a shoebox full of statements and bills and crying, yeah. you know, her eyes out. I don't even know where to start. I had never been involved in anything money related. And it wasn't that she was dumb. I mean, she was a sharp woman, but the husband insisted on making those decisions. Not a good situation. No, it's not. And that's a big part about what we do is making sure that people are prepared for the inevitable. And it's, it's a bummer of a conversation, but the reality of the situation here is that there are going to be a lot of women inheriting quite a bit of wealth over the next several years. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby, and we're talking about um, a, a massive record amount of wealth being transferred to women over the next year, according to a recent study, three times what we saw just three years ago. The number is $30 trillion. So it, it's not just the wealth transfer, but this this translates to even health costs. Yeah, that's a big one. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of the women that I meet with, and this is silly to me, that the same survey said that high net worth women, diverse, divorcees, widows, they found them knowledgeable of and focused on things like critical issues of long-term yeah. uh, financial planning, long-term care, insurance. There's plenty of, uh, plenty of people, men, women, sometimes the man handles the finances in, in the house, sometimes the woman. Um, but you do need to think about this if, if you're a woman, because you could end up spending more than men on your long-term care. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to outlive uh, males by five years, well, this is generally in your declining years where health issues are going to last a lot longer and be much more costly. Uh, okay, so why don't we see more advisors um, that are female? I, I mean, the number is only 15% of advisors are female. You know, I, I think that what we're talking about here could impact the industry in a positive way yeah. with, with a, a lot more women coming into control of so much money. I think that that's going to open the door up to more females entering the industry so that they can work with some of these women that yeah. want to work with females. And, and, that's, and, and that's I hope fair. so. Yeah. yeah, I do. I mean, here at Allworth, we work as a big team. So yeah. having female advisors to partner with some of these women inheriting incredible wealth is, is a major benefit. Uh, that, that's a, that would be a very positive development out of this study by Fidelity. Here's the Allworth advice. Death or divorce can railroad financial independence regardless of what sex you are. It's critical that you seek out a qualified financial professional when these situations arise. Coming up next, some important financial tips for those who have kids who recently graduated from college. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. You know, graduating college, it's a huge accomplishment, fun, exciting time. But I'll tell you what, it could be scary, too. A lot of these grads are coming out with financial pressures that, you know, they went from party central to, okay, now I've got student debt. I don't have a job yet, or it's not going to pay for everything that I want to do. Um, 
this segment is dedicated to the parents who are listening because I, at least I hope they pass this advice to their children. This is a tough time. Yeah. So don't believe those out there that say there's both good and bad debt. This, this comes from a a recent meeting at Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting. Uh, Billionaire Warren Buffett was asked by a 14 year old, which financial concepts he would give young people who still have time and, to implement and, and them. He was probably thinking a stock tip, you I know, know yeah, right? yeah. How should I invest my, you know, 14 years old, my lawn money or something like that. Yeah. And yeah. Buffett's first number one tip was avoid debt. Yeah. And he didn't say avoid bad debt. Mortgages are great. You know, he, yeah. he just said debt is and basically debt's a killer. And yeah. I, I agree with him. Yeah. I mean, I came out of college with uh, $40,000 in debt back in wow. the early 2000s. That's that's like starting with a mortgage, but you, yeah, you, you don't have a home over your head. It's it's rent at that point. There's no way you're getting a mortgage so you, when you, you have that. So you've got forty thousand in debt. Um, did you get a job right out of college? I did, but not in my industry. Okay, I, I may have worked uh, at a restaurant for a little while. Had had some fun. So that was uh, a big number. It was. So yeah. that 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 certainly couldn't last too long. Uh, yeah. That hiatus because that that was a lot of debt on my shoulders. But again, and I've talked about it before, I, I was the first in my family to go, yep. to go to college. It was kind of going in blind, but I came out with that debt and that was, that was a burden for many, many years. It's behind me now, luckily, but not a lot of fun. So if you've got a graduating senior, you can't really tell them don't get in a student debt because they already did it. They yes. already have it. But if you've got a kid that's just getting ready to go to college, maybe think about how can we avoid as much and hopefully all student debt as possible to keep that stress from being over their head, hopefully four years down the road, not seven or eight years down the road, because yeah. that would be an even even big number. So, okay, um, you know, that goes back to um, don't listen necessarily to what they say. And I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this because we're part of they, you know, we're so-called we finan- fan- yeah, financial we experts. But, you know, they say, um, if you're just, you know, getting out of college, um, maybe you should buy a house. Well, when they would be a realtor, yeah, the realtor wants you to buy a house, Absolutely. but that's not necessarily what your first decision should be coming yeah, out of college. I mean, certain high cost of living areas, it's not a chance. There's, there's no chance you're buying a home at that point. And we want to make sure that, that people understand that that's okay. If you need to rent while you're getting established in your career yeah. and getting used to paying some of these uh, bills that you've never had to pay before as as a recent college graduate, it, it is okay to rent while you're paying down your debt. That's that's the key there of not listening to the collective uh, they in yeah. quotations. Well, I, I think the key is a lot of the people who are they have a vested interest. I, I mean, you know, a realtor is going to tell you, yeah, you need to own a home. Um, well, you know, let's let's talk about fiduciaries who don't care how you invest your money. They're just looking out your best interest and and whatever the industry is, look for somebody who is a fiduciary and not going to make money based on your decision. Yeah, you're young, you still have time to invest. Exactly. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby, and we're talking about parental advice for graduating seniors. And, and you know, we're talking a lot about student loans. Um, maybe instead of waiting as long as possible to pay it, uh, pay it back, maybe you should think about how you're going to tackle it, even if you're in the deferral. Yeah. So these, these, uh, borrowers can log online and they can see what their payment structures are going to look at, look like after that six month deferral period. 
you can use that time period to practice. It's a good practice time. Yeah. Oh, you better believe it. Yeah. Because if you need to start making those payments and you didn't write that into your budget, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the B word, but let's talk about that. Budgeting, it, it doesn't have to be something that you fight with. It doesn't have to be an adversary. It's a good thing, especially as you're getting close to graduating or maybe have just recently graduated and, you know, looking for that job, hopefully even already have a job. Um, budgeting should be a, a worksheet, a work in progress. Just, okay, let's just, just start fleshing out how much is coming in and, and how I'm going to pay myself, where the money's going to go, and just having a realistic expectation. I Don't do what I did. What I did was I kept two bank accounts one blank check in my wallet. So when I unintentionally overdrew that account, I can start writing checks on the other. Not a good budgeting system. No, not in the least bit. And, and keep in mind, this 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 segment today is for, for our listeners to pass this information to your children. Yeah. The budget for a, a child is much more simple than it is for you. Oh, yeah. When you have multiple competing financial priorities, you know, at the stage in your life that you're in, that, that's going to be trickier than it is for your kid to, to you know, break up their first couple of paychecks and, and divvy that out to make sure that they're able to make payments on, on their student loan debt, for example. Yeah. Okay. Now, here's a tough love part. Okay. This is where in all with fantastic intentions, a lot, a lot of parents... They've been enabling their kids, maybe credit cards, paying cell phone bills. And when you say to the kid, okay, how are you going to start doing this on your own? As the graduating senior, I don't know is not an acceptable <laughs> no. answer. This is the time in their lives where you need to make sure that they start taking a little bit of responsibility because the longer they don't, the tougher road they're going to have in life. It's time for them to start manning up and saying, here's how I'm going to figure out how to get this done. Yeah, you can help them create a plan, but let them leave the nest Yeah, for, for their own good. Yeah, some are, uh, personal responsibility, probably, in my view at least, the most important lesson in life. I think financial independence starts when you first get out of college and the parents don't help you to do everything. Here's the all-worth advice. If your college grad makes financial mistakes here and there, Give them some grace. They're going to make mistakes. Give them a little bit of grace, a little bit of space, because they have something the rest of us don't have as much of, and that is time. Coming up next, when having life insurance is a necessity, you're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Strovac, along with Steve Ruby. Hey, if you've got a financial question you'd like us to answer, just hit the red button on the iHeart app, record your question, go straight to us. We'd love to hear from you. All right, so if you want to sell your home for more money, and who doesn't? Well, there's one thing people are doing that doesn't involve spending money on renovations. We'll explain that straight ahead. All right, Ruby, one major part of financial planning has nothing to do with investing or what index funds you should be putting some money into. This is even more boring. We're going to talk about life insurance. And I'm kidding about the boring part because this is something that everybody has to make a decision on. Some people need it. Some people don't. Yeah, that's a good point. Some people need it. Some don't. And we're going to talk about the six times when you might. So life insurance at its foundation, when you break it down, really what it is is an agreement between the policyholder and the insurance company where you pay premiums as that policyholder. And if you die, the listed beneficiaries, this is typically going to be family, but it could be a business partner. They receive that yeah. death benefit. 
I, I, I mean, I'm going to summarize it by, you know, you need life insurance if somebody is depending on your income that you're not going to be able to provide if you're dead. I, yeah. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. And, and and the biggest problem I've got with life insurance is it's a commission-driven industry. You yeah. don't find many fiduciaries there. And when somebody gets a big, fat paycheck, if they can convince you to sign on the dotted line, they've got a reason where they may. And I'm not saying they're, uh, all agents are like this by any stretch. But there is a financial incentive for you to buy a large life insurance policy. Exactly. And there's so many different types of life insurance yeah. policies with riders and features that are confusing and expensive that most of the time you don't need. Right. What we're talking about right, right now is mostly term policies. Yeah. So if, yeah. if you have uh, somebody that depends on your income, uh, most commonly a spouse, and you make significantly more than they do, yeah. this is one of those areas where you might want to have a term policy where the term ends around the time of your anticipated retirement. It, exactly. Or, or maybe when all of your major expenses fall off, uh, mortgages, any kind yeah. of debt that you might have. That That's the first one. What, what about children? Well, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, if you have young children and you're the breadwinner in the family, um, or at least a, a more significant income, um, you need a lot of life insurance because those kids not just need that income uh, for your now widow or widowed uh, spouse, um, but, you know, college will be coming up. That's a big number. So you've got young kids. You may need to buy a whole heck of a lot of life insurance. Don't be surprised by the numbers that that are being recommended to you that you may need yeah, those and you, kids. And you can start with whatever benefit you receive through your employer. But one of the issues there is they lack, those plans lack portability. Yeah. If you were to leave your job, that's typically not going to come with you. So this is term policy yeah. with the help of ideally a fiduciary financial planner yeah. that's going to put your best interest ahead of their own. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to sell life insurance to somebody, but I'll identify the need. Yeah, so that, same. Yeah. So that if if the, the answer is, yeah, you need a million dollars uh, of life insurance. OK, they heard it from somebody who's got no financial incentive and then they can go out and shop for the best deal on a million dollars. But if somebody walks in and says you need two million, they're going to question, why did that person come up with twice the number that the guy who gets no compensation for it came up with? I, I, I think that's important. Yeah. Exactly. All right. All right how, how about if you just co-signed a loan? Yeah, that's a big one because debts don't vanish when the primary borrower passes away. That if you co-signed, that's the key here. If you co-signed a loan, then you could be on the hook for that. So that's where the other borrowers might want to have a, a life insurance policy that named you as the beneficiary yeah. to cover you in the event of them leaving us earlier than anticipated. Oh, okay. So, so I and I'm not in this category. I would love to be in this category, but. There are estate taxes. They don't kick in at the federal level unless your estate is close to $13 million. But I'll tell you what, the federal government taxes pretty heavily if your estate does exceed $13 million. That's a, a surprising uh, reason that you may need life insurance. Yeah, once you reach that point, so what you quoted, the $13 million, yeah. that's for a single individual. The 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 married couple is actually about twenty six million dollars for twenty twenty three. So if if you're going to owe more than that, or yeah. if you, if your estate is going to be worth more than that when you're gone, then there are strategies where you can use a life insurance policy to help cover some of the inevitable estate tax or death tax that you've heard of. Before. Yeah, and 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 that's where you would buy the life insurance only if you want your your uh, heirs to receive every dime of, of your inheritance. If you say, you know what, I don't care. They're getting plenty of money. And, and you know, if the government takes a piece of that, that's just the way it is. And then, then you don't buy life insurance. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and again, this one, this is for your ultra high net worth individuals. Yeah. There's trust strategies that you can use to help pay that death tax using an insurance policy to ensure that you're finding a way to poke Uncle Sam in the eye f- from your grave, essentially. You're, you're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovec along with Steve Ruby, and we're talking about when you need life insurance. And I, I'll tell you one, and I've seen this with a couple of people. Um, you just want to throw a heck of a party. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> and, and you want to make sure there's plenty of money so everybody ha- has a good time. All right. Um, but there are times when you don't need life insurance. And okay, my estate is not $26 million as a married couple or $13 million as, as an individual, but I'm, I'm retired. I, I'm, I'm not making any money. So why should I replace income if I'm not working any longer? I would argue that that's that's a reason that maybe you don't need life insurance at that stage of your life. Oh yeah, absolutely. A lot of folks that I that that I work with, we, we have a, an honest review of of insurance policies that that they hold, and I give recommendations as to whether or not it's something that they truly need or if they can get rid of. And if they do get rid of it, what does that look like? Because if it's a whole life or universal life, there could be cash balances attached uh, attached to it, which could create a tax event. Uh, there's also opportunities to save money on premiums if you don't need that insurance policy anymore. Yeah, and, and I think you really do need to sit down with a fiduciary to understand the different types of life insurance. We're just talking in broad concepts about do you need any type of policy, but there are major differences between term life insurance, universal life, variable life, um, an employer-sponsored plan, and that's where you need to sit down with a fiduciary and understand which type of life insurance works in your case if you do need life insurance because the cost differences between those policies are huge. Yeah, oftentimes, I I don't like to speak in generalities, but oftentimes a term policy is more than enough. There are insurance sales reps out there that try to convince you that you need a whole life or a universal life to start building wealth outside of investment portfolios. But that's oftentimes stacked with hidden fees and, and features that you don't need and will never use. Here's the all worth advice, whether or not you need life insurance. That's a question that should be answered, not by a salesperson, but by a full-time fiduciary financial advisor. Coming up next, do you want to boost the selling price of your home? Yeah, there's something pretty unique that we haven't talked about much. We'll do that next. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Steve Ruby. So if you're selling a house, you want to know what helps and what doesn't when it comes to getting top dollar. You know having an updated kitchen, neutral wall colors, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, they're going to help sell your house quickly. But you know what? Maybe just making a video is going to get you even more money. Yeah, I know. This is fascinating to me. So according to Mansion Global Magazine, creating a video of your home is more important than ever. And it's not just a video that shows the layout of the house. Right. The goal here is to show the mood of the house. Isn't the that mood. something? Do houses have mood? Apparently, I was they not do. Aware of that? Depending on how you direct that video, uh, that could certainly be the case. Uh, an example that the magazine shares is about a house. It was an upscale home in Los Angeles, and the owners they produced a video of. Get this: raindrops in the pool, trees blowing softly in the breeze, and a deer pausing on a narrow road that leads to the private. Yeah, it, it sounds goofy, but they got a million dollars over list, probably it? because of this. I mean, I mean, the numbers, uh, they, the numbers are staggering that the average number of views are four times, 400 percent with a video more than without a video. That, yeah. that, I mean, that you got to do a video. 
Yeah, in this day and age too, just think about everybody that that sits around and watches videos on their phone. And if something goes viral, just think of the attention that gets. So, this this video specifically from this home in LA, interested buyers from around the world saw it. Well, uh, pretty much everybody. I think the number's over ninety percent. Everybody's going to start their search online. You yeah, know, you're not exactly. going to just grab a realtor and say, "Hey, show me what you like." I mean, you want to, you don't want to get sucked into that right away. You want to just sit there, look at Zillow, look at Redfin, whatever the case is. And if there's a video, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to be a lot more interested than, you know, in some cases, some horrendously bad pictures. Oh yeah. There's, yeah you know, those ones go viral too, for the wrong reason. You know, the, the people lived with some kind of crazy decorations throughout the whole house. Yeah. 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 And, and, and uh, you know, a, a realtor, there's a pretty hefty commission. We sold our house two and a half years ago. I mean, 6%. Of, of, you know, as an example, five or six hundred thousand dollars, you know, you're talking twenty five, thirty, thirty five thousand dollars of commissions. I think you should be able to take a few hundred dollars and, and a little bit of time and make a good quality video. Have, have you if those are the numbers? Have you seen one of these videos before? Not not one of the ones I with have. the deer. Okay. No, not with a deer. So I I knew somebody that was looking at a house in Hyde Park neighborhood here in yeah. Cincinnati, and it was uh, near the observatory. Okay. And this this drone was flying through the house. Get through, out. Yes, through the house, I guess, showing the mood of, of the yeah. property. And it comes out the front door and it flies slowly into the sky, giving you this breathtaking view from above of wow. what the property looked like next to the observatory. I would think that would help sell it. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm used to when we sold our house and they said they were going to bring this two and a half years ago. So the way technology changes, yeah, it's changing rapidly. But we we had a, an aerial view with a drone basically to show the property lines uh, of our house. You know, that was it. It was just a picture from above, yeah. not a flying video. That's a boring mood. Here's yeah, your property line. Yeah, like, I guess we're you're happy. Did, huh? But to, so, don't forget, I'm ancient. You know, this was ancient technology. This was two and a half years ago. Yeah, I mean, you know? the last house I sold wouldn't fit this bill. This is mostly for your your... your your big fancy homes where I guess mood is important. And, and keep in mind, homes that include the aerial view, they're yeah. 68% more likely to sell a listing than, than those that don't have the uh, the look from above. Well, that makes sense. If you're selling a house, especially if it's uh, a more expensive house, tell your realtor you want uh, you want a video of the house and maybe take a look at that that agent's other listings to see if they've done videos for those houses. Thanks for listening. Tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk about why some are more worried about their money than dying. You've been listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial on 55KRC, the talk station.